Are we already rolling? Yeah. Oh, it's so it's cool. It's one of those podcasts. <clears throat> nice. <laughs> All right. This is the arbitration station. I'm Joel Dahlqvist Kullborg, and I'm in Stockholm with Brian Kodik, our co-host. Hi, Joel. Hi, Brian. Where are we specifically in Stockholm? We are on the 12th floor of my office because it's quiet and there's a nice view. The view is amazing. I'm a little bit disappointed, though, because we've had an amazing summery week, and now it looks like any other day in Stockholm. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a perfect day to sit down and record a podcast. Exactly. We are here because of the Arbitration Station, which is a podcast that we sort of conceived a week ago, and we intend for it to be... Or let, let me say how, how I, th- I feel about what we're doing. Okay. Because I, I haven't uh, at all touched base with you. I want this to be a forum where you and I could just talk in the same way we would after an international arbitration conference. So once the, once the substance is over and the things you, you, you're <laughs> supposedly there to do, half of the people go home and then there's wine and there's food and you meet four or five more people that you've never met before. And that's for me when the conference is really kicking off. Definitely. So it's it's both substance. It's also a little bit bullshit. It's also a little bit of gossip. <laughs> but it's basically smart people who enjoy what they're doing, having a glass of wine. But also with the secret side of like trying to network and trying to get into something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> trying to angling. Yeah. Which I guess we are beyond in our personal relationship, right? We don't have yeah. to network. I mean, I'm still trying to get things out of you, but I don't know how good it's going to be yeah. when I get it. Yeah, okay, that's exactly what I'm doing as well. <laughs> I, think, I think mine is... I, I have a better chance of getting something out of you, I think. Yeah. Generally speaking. Like money. Yeah, like a 12th floor view over a rainy Stockholm. Right. I got it all, Joel. Stick with me, man. Yeah, I will. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the format that we were thinking about for this... Uh, podcast is that it would be about three topics, maybe more for feeling Randy, but about three topics talking about the substance of some, you know, very relevant issues that are coming up in arbitration today or recently or things that we just find interesting. Um, And then we could maybe talk about something about real life in the arbitration world. So whether it has to do with studies or personal development or contacts or networking or conferences or whatever we find that doesn't have to do with talking about case law. Yeah, that's a pretty good setup, I think. I would listen to this. So probably you, me, and my mom <laughs> will, will end up listening. My, my Jewish mom will be all over this. The retirement home for Esther will be all over this. Great. You hear that? Big law firms, four listeners. <laughs> pay, pay up. <laughs> okay, so first topic, I guess. Uh, is the use of administrative secretaries yes. in, in, in international arbitration. And I think it might be good already at this stage to get out of the way that we both work primarily right, with investment treaty arbitration. Is yeah. that correct for you as well? That's how it's turned out. Yeah. Which doesn't mean that we will talk about investment treaty arbitration only. No. Because as our listeners would know, most arbitration practitioners sort of do both commercial cases and, and treaty cases or maybe not... The, the people who do treaty cases also normally do commercial cases as well. Right. So we'll maybe 
uh, go a little bit between in between the two. Also, I'm just starting to figure out that I'm not a native English speaker, which is unfair. In you this, would never uh, know. No. <laughs> That's very international arbitration of us, though, that we have one person who barely speaks English and one who's, who's, uh, who's a native speaker. That's the way it should be. So your language will be more precise and my language will be more like flamboyant. Yeah, probably. That's normally the case, right? It, it, it's always the case. In any hearing or anything, <laughs> you're sitting with a native speaker, you're like, oh, wow, they're native speaking. And then you're like, they're not saying anything of substance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the person who's had to actually work on their language exactly. from scratch. Write a script, <laughs> double check everything, instead of shooting from the hip. Okay, good. Now you just raised the bar tremendously for, for me. <laughs> Thanks. So I was, a few weeks back, I was at, uh, not at a conference actually, but at uh, an, um, I guess you'd call it an, an education hosted by the ICC, the International Chamber of Commerce. Uh, for for administrative secretaries in international arbitration, which is fascinating to me, Wait, that I was there or that the thing yes, in general? that you got off the couch. But second, <laughs> I think that it's become such a formalized thing now. Yeah, and that's I think I told you this before I went there that I, I was a bit skeptical because it it seemed to me, and note the past tense, it seemed to me like this is a way to make money for for arbitration institutions because I know there's one in in Hong Kong the HKAC has an even more extensive program where they actually formally accredit tribunal secretaries and put them on a roster. Wow. And I think that costs even more than the, the Paris equivalent. Wow. So I was a bit like, okay, this is just good good business models trying to milk right. junior lawyers. Scientology. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> in, a, in an arbitration <laughs> quote. But, but the, I was pleasantly surprised, actually. Uh, maybe not primarily because of... of um, the like substantive structure of, of the the course, but uh, also because there were so many people there. How many people were there? I'd say we were maybe twenty. You know, ballpark. All over Europe or the world. Wow! And it was fully booked, so the ICC people made a big deal out of the fact that they're gonna have to have more of these soon because there are like people in the pipeline just waiting to to take this training. So I think there's a there's a demand for this type of like more formalized training for, for tribunal secretaries. How much did it cost, by the way? Blah, I think uh, 700 euros. That's not awful. No, I think that's pretty reasonable. But it was one day, though, so oh, okay. they, they could probably extend it for more. I think the HKAC thing, and I'm happy to stand corrected, but I think it's like maybe three or four times as much. Oh, okay. But then it's several days, and you take tests, and you're like formally accredited, and put on a roster. I don't even know what that entails. Yeah, I guess they've called the institution and asked for a secretary. How often does that even happen? I don't know. <laughs> you usually take someone down the hall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but to, to back it up a little bit, for those of our listeners who aren't as sophisticated as we are in the practice of being an administrative secretary. Super sophisticated. <laughs> I've had one case. You've had one case. Three. Three? Jesus, okay. Yeah. Then you are three times as experienced as <laughs> me. The use of administrative secretaries, as you've already hinted at, is becoming more and more increasingly used, especially for bigger international cases. And in essence, it, it, it is a way for the tribunal or the sole arbitrator, in cases where you have only one arbitrator, to optimize the pr procedure a little bit for the parties in terms of what they pay for. And rather than having an expensive person billing many, many hundreds uh, of euros or dollars per hour doing essentially administrative tasks, you get the parties, ideally, to agree 
to appointing an administrative secretary who ideally should not be making any decisions or in any way be involved in the substantive parts but we'll probably get back to this. We'll flag the word ideally. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> there's a big gray zone, of course, in what you're supposed to be doing. It's not always crystal clear. But ideally, you should be essentially like a clerk, I think, in many court systems. You, like, you, you, you draft procedural orders. You keep check on the case file. You set up case management conference. You, you do all the, like, the legwork that the arbitrators could be doing, but it would simply be too... Uh, expensive for the parties. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the term secretary, the title secretary is very apt in this case. I mean, you're the one answering the emails, you're making the phone calls, all the electronic equipment that your dinosaur arbitrator can't deal with. Yeah. You're the one who steps in and kind of solves that issue. And you just kind of smooth things out for the case, which I think parties would actually really benefit from, although you have to pay and, you know, there's impartiality. Interestingly, uh, on that note, and, and in, in the ICC's defense, on one of the like panels where we had, like, there were four or five panels of, of a very group of people speaking, and then we had interactions, of course, with the, with the group of people who were, who were there, because it was essentially a, a course. But on one of the panels, they've had in, they had invited uh, a, a user of the system, so uh, a legal counsel who was a repeat player, and <clears throat> excuse me, she'd done, I don't know how many arbitrations, but she has basically been for 25, 30 years on the buyer's side of arbitration services. And she was not a very big friend of the system of administrative secretaries. Really? Because, and I can really understand, because she was like this, we, we put uh, a tremendous amount of time and effort into appointing the arbitrators. Mm -hmm. And then an external person who normally is a junior person that we have no, like, way of vet vetting or knowing anything about really comes into to the procedure and we don't know what he or she does what kind of influence he or she is having on, on the people and we've never vetted that person so sh she was even like which I understand but it, I mean it's the same thing when a client hires a partner and they say why aren't you working on the case more why aren't you seeing why aren't you at all the meetings why am I talking to this junior and they re you know they hire the partner but they get the junior and that's what happens with these tribunals often. But I mean, and then you go back to your point, which is ideally they're not making the decisions. So what are they really doing? They're copy pasting recitals into a document and waiting for the arbitrator to actually make the decisions. So in essence, what's the difference? All you're trying to get from this arbitrator is their position in the deliberation and then their decision on the issues. Who cares who drafts the recitals? Well, supposedly the parties do taking this one woman's word. As yeah. <laughs> but, but no, and I'm sure they do. Yeah, and, and drawing that to its logical conclusions, if, if parties are uncomfortable with this, that's a problem Yeah. For, for arbitration because we are only there because the parties put, out there and put us there in the first place. So the, it, it might be, I'm not saying it is necessarily, but it might be a problem that this is becoming a thing with, like, within the arbitration community because it's a good way, of course, of, for, of uh, training junior lawyers and, and getting more arbitration experience and sort of, foster the community long term but if it's on the party's dime right and they don't like it, it it could be a problem but that is of course something that is being addressed and i know under most arbitration like institutional rules at least now of course you must have the party's consent to appointing the the secretary and under most rules also you you need to have a statement of independence and impartiality similar to the one that, that arbitrators have to give. Which you should do. Yeah. But all of mine I was unofficially. 
Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's also something that we discussed, actually, because that, I think, is a, is a very common practice. Uh, and that's probably what the institutional rules are trying to avoid as yeah. much as possible. I mean, it was almost like a group of friends, and then someone started bringing their other friend along. And yeah. then, like, after a while, like, I guess we're hanging out with Brian. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's <laughs> what it was. I was in the hearing, and they're just like, okay, I'm okay with this, I guess. I didn't have a question. That's interesting. But then, of course, it wasn't a problem for the parties. The, no. the parties themselves, they also became aware that you were somehow involved. Yeah. They just, I think they just thought it was custom. But they were two Eastern European, like one of them that I dealt with, they were two Eastern European parties. And I just think that they were thinking this was the Swedish way of doing things, maybe. I don't know. That yeah. They weren't a repeat player in arbitration. These were okay. first time, you know. Yeah. So I don't know. It wasn't a problem, though. But that, I mean, it presumably... Worst case scenario, it could be a problem. Of course. If there were some indication that you were more involved than you should have been, and one party wanted to use that as a grand challenge. Which it was recently. Yeah, exactly. Because this is also, I think, one of the reasons that the the institutions now are sort of streamlining and, and starting to regulate this. Because there's a very, very, very famous case in investment treaty arbitration that is currently ongoing. Pending set aside in the Dutch courts, uh, the Yukos versus Russian Federation case, where it's actually I think if you if you read through the briefs, the uh, use of administrative secretary is not like the primary point no. in the challenge, but it's the one that's been most uh, interesting to the arbitration community, of course, because in essence Russia is arguing that the tribunal secretary acted as a fourth arbitrator, and they even brought in a forensic linguist, which is such a cool job, it should be, it sounds like it's made up, <laughs> to analyze, compare other writings of the secretary with the writing in the award, and then comparing other writings of the chairman of the tribunal with the award. Wow. And finding with like 80-something percent probability that all the relevant sections were in fact written by the secretary and not by the chairman. Is someone lying? I don't understand <laughs> this. They're like, I didn't write that, and they're like trying to figure it out? I don't know. Actually, they, they would have to speak for themselves, yeah. the people in the tribunal. But it's also the, part of that problem is because it's, it is a unique case in the sense that it's on yeah. $50 billion, yeah. the damages awarded, and it, it went on for like 12 years. So the guy who was an administrative secretary working at the law firm of the chairman when the case started was like a pretty senior partner by the time the case concluded. Which is hilarious. It is. <laughs> and I would imagine it also creates like all these weird... Uh, suspicions that you actually or basically the, the argument that you have a fourth arbitrator is easier to make if you have like a 42 year old partner yeah, exactly. acting as the secretary as opposed to having somebody like us who obviously has no sway yes ma'am with the no tribunal. Ma yeah exactly I will write this, very much so <laughs> that was by the way my biggest takeaway I was going over my notes from this ICC training it's like don't don't ever talk okay I mean in deliberations and and, right. and so on but but you're allowed to address them that's the so I was asked, now that you said that, I was asked in one of my, like, it wasn't even a proper deliberation. It was after the hearing was over and the tribunal retired into, like, their room. Yeah. And then they were talking about the case, you know, as they usually do while it's fresh in their mind. And then one of the arbitrators was, Brian, what do you think? And I was like, and I, I mean, I said what I think because, you know, I'm mildly narcissistic and want to tell them <laughs> what I think. But I was just, I mean, now that you say that, it's like, that probably was a bit improper. I would like to think, now that I have been trained 
by the <laughs> ICC. Certified. Yeah. That, that I would have said, I don't think it's appropriate for me to answer that question. Yeah. I don't think I would, but I would like to think that I would have. <laughs> because I'm also mildly narcissistic. <laughs> and if the question is asked, you're allowed to, to, to reply, of course. But, but I mean, for yeah, in theory, that could be improper because you, you could be influencing. And unlike the case when the, the analogy you were using, unlike the case when you hire a law firm partner, or for that matter, unlike the case when you go to court, mm-hmm. the arbitrators are there on a personal mandate. When you hire a firm, even if you like to work with a partner, you still hire the firm, legally speaking. That's so it true. doesn't really matter who within the firm is doing the job. And if you go to court, even though you expect the judge, he's still acting as, as a, an agent of the court, and so is his clerk, who's also employed by the court, and they both speak for the court, so to speak. Right. But an arbitrator is only speaking for him or herself, and then if that personal mandate is sort of undercut by another person who has no mandate coming in from the side, I think that's a different story. Which is why the ground of challenge is... What was the ground of challenge to you guys? Was that an excessive mandate? Yeah. Yeah. So that makes sense. Which, unfortunately, the district court, which has already pronounced itself on the, on the challenge, set aside the award yeah. controversially, but not on that ground. And they didn't even mention it for, like, for that very reason. They didn't have to. Now it's before the Court of Appeal in The Hague or whatever it's mm-hmm. called. Uh, the Appeals Court. So hopefully... Speaking as an academic, we'll see something on this um, by the Dutch court. So was your training about how to write an award, or what was the training topic? Let me, let me read them out for you. <laughs> what is expected from a tribunal secretary? Mm-hmm. Second, the... Booking lunches. Yeah. <laughs> getting coffee. <laughs> but that, that part, and most of these were like very hands-on. So, so the people speaking were a mix, generally, of senior arbitrators who themselves employ secretaries. Right. Like senior associates, people who, at law firms who have done more cases than we have. Yeah. And ICC people who work at the institution, seeing this from the institutional side. It's a good mix. It was a very, very good mix, actually. Mm-hmm. Then we also talked about the appointment, like when to appoint, uh, whom to appoint, how to appoint, mm-hmm. yada, 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 yada. And then they structured it chronologically during the lifespan of an arbitration. So like the... What your role would be. Yeah, like the, organizing the proceedings, you know, where up until uh, the signature of the terms of reference as you have in the ICC cases. And then from that point on until the hearing and then from the hearing until the award and then yeah. after the award, basically. So step by step and very, very hands-on. We even got like draft... Not official ICC draft, but but from other people teaching, draft procedure orders and that kind of stuff. So it was pretty useful, and I wish I did this before I started working on a case. Right. Well, maybe I guess a lot of people should, but you don't. I mean, you don't get it. It's not like I had a chance to do it myself. It was like write a procedure order by tomorrow. Yeah. I wasn't like, let me read up on how to be a secretary first. <laughs> like I did when I tried being a waiter for the first time. <laughs> I Googled how to be a waiter. I got fired after three hours. Yeah. What what what, what came up when, when you Google, I mean? How to be a waiter? Yeah. Oh, no, but like... Because I don't think that would be very helpful. how to carry plates. It was like... It was <laughs> YouTube really video. I just wanted... Because I lied about my experience. And I said I had worked for a year. Yeah. And I, wa- I was like... I wanted to be like... 
you know, what are some things that experienced waiters do? Like, what's the lingo? You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It didn't really work. I got but I think fired. that that would be the exact same thing if you did the same with secretary. Like, if you Googled. Yeah. So, so this is why they have it. Yeah. You can go here. And I, and I mean, I, I actually did this uh, on my own. Or I, I got an email because I'm on some sort of ICC general email list. And then I asked uh, the arbitrator that I'm working for, like, would you, would you fork out for, for me to go to Paris for a day and do this training? Right. And he's like, sure, that sounds like a, a good idea. Which is great that he took that initiative, or I guess you took the initiative, but yeah. that he allowed it to happen. Yeah, exactly. He complied with, with yeah. my demands. Yeah. And I mean, so there's also, I mean, I know people that it's their career, right? They follow these senior arbitrators around, yeah. and they have so many cases, and that's just that's just their career. So this is actually something that you could do if you like to the arbitration world, but necessarily didn't want to work at an institution or be yeah. counsel. Yeah, because yeah. it's a good way of seeing arbitration from the inside. Yeah, I think for me, maybe it's just my personal take, but I think it's it's an excellent job. I would love to do it full time, at least for a couple of years, because you get a good trade off. And also you have no responsibilities, essentially, like formally, yeah. everything is a tribunal's <laughs> job. And then you, of course, do a lot of things, right? But you're never in the line of fire yourself, but you're still like being part of the liberations and you get to, like draft things and communicate with parties and you make a lot of contacts. And it's, it seems a like a pretty contacts. sweet gig. And one thing that we talked about generally partly because I kept bringing it up during this training, that there's, uh, in many ways, a distinction between people who act as secretaries while they're working at a law firm for a partner of theirs, right. like, like you did. Yeah. And on the other side, people who work like on their own, normally because the arbitrator in question is like a, an independent arbitrator or a professor or whatever. Right. Because if you're within the firm, normally you have all the firm infrastructure in place, and there's like a, um, an institutional knowledge within the firm of how to do exactly. this. And generally, you don't get paid, I think, because no. it's sort of within the frames of what you're supposed to be doing anyway. Exactly. But it did count to our billable hours. Yeah, of course. But you, so you don't, you, because that's the, the sweet spot, of course, is if you're doing this on your own, yeah. it, it's pretty well paid. Is it? I think that was also something that we, one of the, it was good to have a lot of peer discussions, like people who are in similar positions, like what do you bill? Normally? Yeah. Because that's the type of knowledge that, that the ICC doesn't like to, like, print in their folders basically. right so yeah i think normally the it seemed like uh, my, my take on the market rate would be that you charge between 150 to 100 an hour for secretarial work which is of course substantially less than what arbitrators charge but if you if you yourself get to see that money if you're not working for a firm but you're like <laughs> billing in this <clears throat> it's good money it's good money you you need like one or two cases so do you bill the arbitrators Yes. Okay. Uh, I would like to hear your take on this, actually, because I never got to, to bring that up. Uh, under most rules now, institutional rules, you, you as secretary build the arbitrators. So the, the underlying idea is that the parties should not have to pay more because there's a secretary. So the secretary's fee comes out of the arbitrator's fee. Okay. In ad hoc arbitration, I think under the UNCITRAL rules, for example, normally... It's an added it cost. Is an added, yeah, yeah, so the parties would have to pay mm -hmm. more. And that makes perfect sense, the institutional uh, setup. I mean, that it shouldn't be more expensive for the parties because the whole notion is like you, you, it should be cheaper. That's why we have secretaries. Yeah, I totally But the agree. problem that I never raised is that I think it, it puts the secretary in sort of an awkward position because you have no leverage against the chairman, typically, or the tribunal. On how much to charge? Yeah, and yeah. and like how how many hours to bill, and in in theory, 
it, it could be the case that the tribunal is like, okay, thank you very much. We just assume that this is, of course, pro bono because it's a great cake for you. Right. And it is a great cake for you. So you should be thankful because you're uh, a person who generally wants to get into international arbitration and this is the perfect job. Yeah. So you could be taken advantage of, I think. Easily. Yeah. I would like to think that that won't happen. But I think it, it, it might be wise to at least consider some sort of regulation because there are other like soft law instruments and a few reports. I think the young ICA did a report on like the use of secretaries and I'm not sure if this was addressed. Well, basically I'm just trying to make a, a call for arms to the community of tribunal secretaries that this is maybe something we should address. We need a union. Yes, exactly. <laughs> in the least unionized workplace in the world, yeah, the international exactly. law firm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know how else you're going to get in the door if your first case is not either with a partner in your own firm or, uh, well, in your case, I mean, you're working with someone in a different capacity and then you yeah. became a secretary like yeah. that. But I, I mean, otherwise, but then, I mean, it's, then that's the discussion. If this is your first case, should you be so excited that you, this is your first case that you just work for them? Or do you have, and you're right, there is no leverage because these people are often very well known and you'd be just honored to be in the deliberation room. Yeah, exactly. So there's an ample room to take advantage of this, I think. But you got to know your worth. I mean, it's the same thing as being a junior associate. At some point you got to be like, enough is enough. <laughs> I have a brain. <laughs> I spent nine years at university. Exactly. <laughs> you have to know your worth, I think. And, you know, it's like, why do people buy a Gucci bag versus like a nothing bag, you know? You, because it, it costs more, and some yeah, people yeah, yeah. have that like mentality. Why do people go to LCIA instead of other institutions? Yeah, it costs more. Don't sue us. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's an interesting. It's an interesting question. Yeah, it's a it's a minor one, but I think that's uh, as this practice is becoming more and more frequent, as we say, to go full circle and round this topic off. I think that's one of the things that we should talk about more as we start to like formalize the use of secretaries, which generally seems to be a good idea and something that parties would like. It's a trend that's happening and we can't really stop it. Yeah, so it's better that we talk about it and try to like somehow put it into actual codified norms, right. how, how we should do it. All right, well, let's take a break. Great. We're now going to move on to the second portion of this inaugural show. Um, talking about something that has come up, and this is also maybe not something that is discussed a lot, but the more that I delved into it, the more um, we should be talking about it. Um, and it really piggybacks on what we're talking about with the tribunal secretaries because we're talking about deliberations and we're talking about the need or whether there should be a need to formalize deliberations in international arbitration. And the reason why this has come up is because there's this Puma case, and that will be like the foundation of what we're going to talk about, um, where the party to an annulled award was entitled to recover arbitrator fees paid by two arbitrators on the basis that by excluding the third arbitrator from deliberations, they had been reckless and engaged their liability under the Spanish Arbitration Act. So this is a case coming from the Spanish Supreme Court. Um, and it's an interesting case. Well, so, you know, kind of to get into the gossip side of that case. Um, Please. There was, there was three arbitrators, of course, and they had met several times. Um, and then one of them, this um, man by Mr. Gaston, uh, was on vacation. Or he took a, he was on a trip. So I don't know if it was a vacation or if it was a, some 
um, something professional. Um, and then during that time, when the arbitrators knew that he was gone, they met again, and then they had the final deliberation, which ended up being uh, what was memorialized into the award. The interesting thing is that Mr. Gaston, in this case, uh, did not agree on certain points, and a specific point. Um, but they, 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 the other two arbitrators met while Mr. Gaston was on vacation. Yes. And that's like undisputed. Yeah. That happened. Okay. Yeah. That happened. And, the, and so, like, Mr. Gaston was on one side, so he was on, he was uh, Puma's appointed arbitrator. Um, and he, and their deliberations were talking about the damages to be paid by Puma. And his position was contrasted or opposed to the other two. Yeah. And then, so that was even more of a problem because it was like someone who doesn't agree is on vacation, and then they end up rendering an award that has to do with what these two guys thought. Um, and so, and then the parties were notified of the award the same day. So they really just expedited that procedure. Uh, so this then came up in the Spanish Supreme Court and they uh, has said that the arbitrator fees or that the parties could recover the arbitrator fees based off this impropriety. Um, the problem with this um, is that it's not regulated anywhere in, in institutional rules or otherwise. You don't see a deliberation as a formal procedural step that you need to take or something that should be observed. Um, I've been in, as I said, a couple of deliberations. And I mean, they weren't deliberations. They were exchanges of drafts and some yeah. emails and a little bit of talk over coffee after the hearing ended. Do I think that it was improper? No, but uh, because they talked about the cases and if they needed to say something, they brought it up. And if you didn't agree, you write a dissenting opinion. And so, I mean, but should there be a deliberation should it be a formalized deliberation and wait and if there isn't then what's the problem um so some people have said that the standard or like where this right comes from is that the deliberation is an implied right of the right to be heard or the right to equal treatment if, yeah and can i ask you on that note it sounds like this ruling and the way i understood it from the, the blog post that you have written about it, which you are under international arbitration custom, must flag and apologize for <laughs> self-promoting, which you neglected to do. I apologize but, uh, <laughs> for nothing. Yeah, it sounds like this is not a challenge of the award. This is a liability issue. Exactly. It's like, do, can they recover the fees? Right. So the award was never challenged on this ground. No, no. Do you know right. why? Uh, it, I mean, it was annulled on different grounds I, okay because yeah. because as, as you were going coming to before i interrupted you it sounds like a violation of like the party's rights to be heard that the arbitrator was not present yeah exactly yeah i mean that and that's where they're taking it from but it's i mean is is that the party's right to be heard does that does the scope of the party's right to be heard include the party appointed arbitrator being involved in the deliberations and then what does being involved in deliberations mean that's a, a good parallel to our previous topic is this pretty, I would say, naive notion that you can isolate the point of time when the decision making is being done by the arbitrators. Like it's, yeah. if you don't have deliberations, you don't have uh, an actual decision making process. Or in the case of the secretary, it's only when you draft that you actually start to think about the decision. So if somebody else is drafting, that means that somebody else is making the decision. Right. Whereas I think most arbitration practitioners and especially arbitrators themselves like to say that you know it's a process from from the first time I get the case file until I sign the award. Basically, that's when the decision making is going on, and right. there are like nineteen different steps between those two times. 
yeah. when you interact with, with the parties and with your federal arbitrators. So missing like one meeting isn't maybe necessarily decisive. No. I mean, and, and so the standard that they're kind of applying is did the arbitrator have an opportunity? Mm. You know, they didn't have to actually be there. You know, what if the arbitrator didn't want to go if they're being, you know, uh, disruptive to the proceedings? You, you need to have a protection for that. Yeah, isn't that the, th the same thing as the, the CME case, the fam one of the f two famous parallel cases against the Czech Republic? One exactly. was seated in London, one was seated in Stockholm. I only know this because we use that case in like four different seminars when I'm teaching because it's such a big case in, in the Stockholm community. There, I think the Czech Republic, and you may correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. challenged on, on the very same ground that exactly. their arbitrator uh, was excluded from the deliberations. And my like bullet point takeaway, not having read the case for a few years, was basically what you were just saying, that the, this, this court, the Sevilla Court of Appeal in Stockholm, when the award was challenged, said essentially that it, it is undisputed that the arbitrator appointed by the Czech Republic did in fact not participate in at least one deliberation. But he had the opportunity. It was clear that the chairman had invited him and they have tried and he apparently did not participate like on his own accord. He chose not to participate. Right. And under those circumstances, uh, you cannot annul the award on that ground. Yeah, they need to move the procedure along. You can't just have a holdout arbitrator. Yeah, exactly. Because then otherwise you'll, you'd always have one. Yeah. Like the, the one party appointed arbitrator would refuse to participate. That would sort of undermine the whole idea. Yeah. So, and I mean, another like base, basis that you would find why or where this kind of right comes from with that it would form some sort of like international public policy, that there should be a public policy towards uh, deliberation being a formalized step. I mean, the opposite side of this is that you have, peop you know, arbitrators that don't, I mean, deliberations are confidential, they're confidential for a reason. Uh, and you don't want to be hindered in the fact that your deliberation now has to be a formalized step uh, in the decision-making process. It should be kind of up to the arbitrators is the counter argument to this. Which I think is the one that would resonate most with international arbitration. Which every arbitration. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the problem is maybe in that respect also that the, the, the people ultimately deciding on this or judges in courts and I think that that type of argument maybe doesn't resonate very well typically with court judges right who may have a more uh, formalistic view of what, what the deliberation is than the more fluid international arbitrators who have yeah flight schedules and whatnot and 19 other cases going on right but see the problem is well the problem is is that now you have a dynamic of a tribunal that could shift um, and there was actually an SEC case uh, that was they uh, brought for enforcement in a Russia uh, commercial arbitrage court in Moscow, and they refused to enforce the SEC award um, due to the fact that it was rendered by two arbitrators. And the, the um, analysis in that case was not very deep, so we, we don't really know what happened. But the SEC actually allowed the two arbitrators to render the award, but it was refused to be enforced because one arbitrator was not even a lawyer, and the other arbitrator is kind of a big name in the arbitration community. And so they said that it would be an imbalance. Yeah. Okay, so you would need to have the third arbitrator there to make the to, dynamic right. work. And that would, so it didn't, have to, it didn't necessarily have to do that the third arbitrator was excluded, but it was the fact that these two other arbitrators uh, 
there was that there was this dynamic that made the deliberation itself improper. Do you know if, if this was seated in Stockholm? This case. Yes. Interesting. Um, and then another so another interesting thing about that case is that they basically refused enforcement under the New York Convention, um, saying that the arbitrate the arbitral procedure was not in accordance to the agreement of the parties. So they also so the way that they kind of got around it was they said, the parties agreed to a tribunal of three. This was decided by a tribunal of two, and therefore it's they refuse enforcement under the New York Convention. On the face of it, that sounds reasonable, or at least more reasonable than the the average. Like right. this violates Russian public policy. Right. No enforcement, <laughs> which happens quite a lot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then as as long as you're, whenever you're relying on your own like domestic law as a grounds to refuse uh, enforcement, then it's it's easier for the court to sort of uh, misuse it. I think. Yeah. But this that argument on the face of it, once again, without knowing m- most of the facts. Yeah. I think sounds pretty reasonable, and I'd be interested to. To know what circumstances prompted the SEC to uh, allow the two arbitrators yeah. to to and render the and that's not order. really in the the case. Yeah, I would imagine, having worked at the SEC as you also have, that the circumstances were special. Yeah, I'm sure. Probably, because I'm not even sure it sits very well with Swedish arbitration law that you render. I mean, under normal circumstances, I would have to look that up before I embarrass myself. <laughs> Instinctively, it feels a little bit strange. Yeah. There was another case, just to give you just a potpourri of how this issue comes up. Um, there's a case that in 2008 in China where the third arbitrator was incarcerated during the deliberation process. So he was not available to deliberate, even though he could have called on his phone or something. Um, and basically, so they un- set aside the award I think this was when was in Beijing. I have to check my records, um, but the they said that it, if the third arbitrator is unavailable to participate in deliberation, the proper procedure would be to formally remove the arbitrator from the tribunal and then appoint a new arbitrator. And then because that procedure wasn't followed, because the two arbitrators ended up rendering the award, because the improper procedure of not appointing a new third arbitrator wasn't followed, the award was invalid. That's also sounds reasonable. Maybe you're just a very good advocate, <laughs> like selectively summarizing cases. But are you really going to ask the parties to formally remove an arbitrator and then appoint a new one, and then he has to decide whether he's going to rehear the entire case again? Yes. Yeah. Is my answer. Yes. And that happens all the time. I don't think it's very controversial. It might be, of course, if, if, if the hearings and the deliberations are already concluded, but I guess mm. the, most of the deliberations have not in this case because that's what you're challenging. Then I think it might be a, a practical problem, of course, yeah, f- for the parties and so on. But I think that's uh, just save any other circumstances. I think that should be the default position, Yeah, that you remove the arbitrator that has been in. The, and that, I mean, arbitrators die. Mm-hmm. Arbitrators are generally old. <laughs> They're not invincible, Joel. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it has happened. And I know, I don't know any cases on the top of my head, but I know there are many exit cases where that particular procedure has been followed. You, you, you replace arbitrators all the time because they are not able for health reasons or right. other reasons to, to participate anymore. I guess as an arbitrator of the one of the two remaining arbitrators, it would just behoove you to request the agreement of the parties to continue in the way that... Yeah. And not just kind of be like, now you have a two-person award. Congratulations. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's always... that's I keep telling my students, and I will say this four times per, 
per podcast episode as well. As long as you get the parties to agree in arbitration, you're fine. Basically. Yeah. Very, very few things that you cannot get away with just by asking the parties. <laughs> that was one technique I saw as a secretary. That was so great. Yeah. Anytime yeah, something came up and I'm like, how is he going to deal with this one? It's exactly. like, do the parties the agree? <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, okay, put it on the record. Make sure there's a record. Exactly. Goes. Then you can move on from basically anything. Um, so basic, so uh, to this call of, you know, formalizing this procedural step, I couldn't find anything. I mean, there's something in the LCA rules, um, Article 15.5, Ten, um, that basically had to do that had to do with um, notification of deliberations, if I'm not mistaken. But that's really the only formalized step. Except I did find that the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators um, have some like you know sets of rules that aren't you know they're not binding or used, but you can use them as inspiration. And they did have a very formalized process. And what it did is it just had. Um, a procedure of how to notify arbitrators of deliberation, how long a deliberation process should take, you know? And it just, it had just, it wasn't formalized in the sense that you need to have oral deliberations or anything like that. But it just said, you felt, you go through some hoops and it just, you know, it just avoids that this will happen on any set-aside procedure. Do you think that's a, a good idea, a reasonable approach? I don't know. It's like putting in your arbitration agreement that you want to negotiate first and no one does it. Right. So it's I don't I I think it could be the, f the problem is, is that you have to the best you the best way to gauge what's happening in arbitration is with the users of the institutional rules and stuff like that. So now you're seeing that cases are being set aside on this ground. It's becoming an issue. One could argue. I mean, there's only been a handful of cases that have dealt with it, but it's an issue, and if you're really talking about, as a counsel, that you want your case heard and heard properly, it may be just another nice thing to tell your client that this is like a formal procedure that you know, has happened. Well, I, was in, I, I was in one case, and our party-appointed arbitrator wrote a dissenting opinion on a specific point, and it was throw, thrown out on jurisdiction. It was a statute of limitations issue. And our client um, was basically like, can we ask us like on our follow-up call after the case? And it was just like, can we rule out any foul play? That was like their first question. You can maybe assume where they were from. Um, and, and we had to be like, no, you know, just because we, you know, respect the honorability of these people. But what if you said, no, I mean, they have this, you know, deliberation procedures in place. They were followed. They have to be followed. And if we find out that they weren't followed, then we have a ground to annul it. Yes, of course, but it, uh, I, I'm Seems realizing like you're taking the opposite position. Yeah, I might, but I'm I'm uncomfortable doing so because I think it's 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 a function of me being more and more of an, an insider in the arbitration world, because <laughs> I'm I'm starting to sound like I'm seventy five years old, because <laughs> I I think just instinctively that it's it's generally a bad idea to regulate th things uh, in that amount of detail. Right. There's both in arbitration rules and in domestic like arbitration statutes, you try to, you want to stay away as much as possible from going into the details of the procedure simply because you want the parties to, to, to be able to shape it the way they prefer and you want the arbitrators to have some leverage in like how they make their decision. That's, arbitration should be tailor-made. Right. And just generally, as soon as you start introducing this sort of like detailed, they, uh, a deliberation must be more than four hours and the three arbitrators must all have 
access to a good coffee machine or whatnot, <laughs> and put that into laws or arbitration rules. I think I think that's a bad idea, generally speaking. But you're right, of course, that there might be a point in time where this is a big enough issue for it to to be to be regulated. I I I think you're. I think I could agree with you that this is a that this may be something we just don't want to touch. Yeah. The problem is if you sit in on a deliberation that is not a deliberation at all, then you then you think of, well, maybe I the parties would have hoped that there was something involved. Because you don't... Listen, they're from all over the world. They're in different time zones. They only have access to email at certain times of the day. There's no chance to, like... And the, the parties don't want to pay for them. Like, let's all fly. You know, there's an arbitrator in New Zealand. There's an arbitrator in the U.S., an arbitrator in Paris. Let's all fly to like the Bahamas and like figure this out. No one's gonna want to pay for that, and no one's gonna sit on the phone for that long. They don't have time, and it's gonna cost too much. So they just exchange drafts. All those reasons you've just been giving isn't that the all of them together the the major like reason that we have, generally speaking, to have the deliberations after the hearing. If you yes. if you ask any arbitrator on the street, oh, like right after the hearing, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. like we, now we're all here, and we. I even know that it's common practice that you ask the chairman asks the other arbitrators not to book a flight like immediately after the hearing is closed, right? Because you want to reserve a couple of hours at least immediately when it's top of mind after the hearing to sit down the three of you and then at least like start to feel each other like where, where are we going with this and yeah might be have, maybe have a dissenting opinion and who should draft what and so on, and then. You formally you've had the deliberation and you of course still had to exchange drafts and so on. Yeah, but you're so limited in that exchange of draft process because it's you know they're like I don't agree with this I don't agree you know I think this I don't agree with you to get to the middle of what they're thinking or to convince someone you're writing long winded emails and then you know it's it's a back and forth maybe once or twice and then you say okay you don't agree with me write a dissenting opinion. And is that a deliberation? You know, you kind of want to be like, oh, I didn't even think about this piece of evidence. You know, you just, an arbitrator makes the decision. It's more efficient to just go with that decision and just have someone write a dissenting opinion. It may not be the best of the parties. We should, at one point, talk about dissenting opinions as well. I think that's tremendously interesting. But let's reserve that for another future yeah. podcast episode. They talk about, just to wrap it up, they said that um, that is another symbol of an arbitrator having an opportunity to be heard in the deliberation process is the ability to write a dissenting opinion. Um, and then there was this, actually there's a French case, and then we'll really wrap it up. Um, it was a French court case, and they said, this is also in the article, and they said that there's a presumption in favor that deliberation was proper. So there's, and at having the ability to write a dissenting opinion is just creating that, or it's not cre- the presumption is not created. It's there unless it's proven otherwise. You know, it's innocent until proven guilty. Yeah, that's a French approach generally. <laughs> arbitration is innocent, right? Until proven guilty. It's the most arbitration-friendly jurisdiction you could find. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. Okay, so for the inaugural episodes, soft happy fun time topic now that we've had two pretty substantive we're going to trademark that yeah happy fun time (laughs) have to make a jingle a specific (laughs) one for the happy fun time aspect of it uh i would like to talk about phd life and like doctoral studies because you are currently a phd student exactly and I'm also a little bit pissed off by the fact that everyone I meet like on the arbitration circuit 
maybe you included at one point in time. I don't know. <laughs> uh, people who make three times as much money as I do come up to me and say, oh, I want to do a PhD as well. It seems so romantic. And you can walk around with like a book under your arm. You can talk to students. So much freedom. Just read. Oh, I love it. And I'm like, just do it. It's not that hard. Then. Quit your fancy law firm job and go to university if you feel that way. Listen, any person in a firm is like, you know, some. I quit to be a lawyer to work at a TV station. I'm like, wow, you're brave. And then they never do it. <laughs> exactly. But it's also... It's the PhD thing, or I think technically I'm doing an LLD maybe, which goes to prove my point that it's very different in different jurisdictions and different university traditions. In Sweden, for better or for worse, it, you, you're paid decently, but you're also tied to the faculty. So it's, like, it's a five-year commitment and you're part of the permanent faculty with extensive teaching duties and like meetings and you know, all these things that a normal academic life working at a faculty would entail. So it's partly because it's, it's, pre, it's preparing you for academic life. That's the purpose. Whereas in many other jurisdictions, uh, a PhD or, or the equivalent is basically just writing a long master's thesis and then submitting it and defending it. And it could be everything from between like a six months to like a two-year thing. And you do it because you would like to just... just uh, I'm not trying to make it sound like... Uh, less than the Swedish doctoral degree, <laughs> although I think that's normally the case. <laughs> it, you, you're interested in a specific topic, and you would like to like, delve into that more deeply and be kind of part of a university tradition, but you're still primarily doing something else. So you're just dipping your feet in, whatever it is you're dipping your feet into when you right. would like to go into university or go back to university. Uh, and normally in those jurisdictions, you don't have any teaching obligations either. Oh, is the requirement to get into these programs the same, even though the program itself I, I don't, is different? I don't think so. Okay. Because, of course, because you get paid and you get to stay for five years in Sweden, we have, like, engine engineers applying for PhD in law in Sweden because it's such a sweet gig. Wow. So you have hundreds and hundreds of applicants, but still also, of course, many qualified applicants. Whereas I think, and now I can only... Uh, guess how many of my friends in like continental Europe will call me up after this? But I, my impression is that in like Germany and France and whatnot, you could basically walk up to a professor and say, "I would like to write a PhD for you," and if the professor think it's a reasonable idea, then sure. That's it. Basically, yeah, because you're not employed, you're not getting paid. Right. Basically, it's a it's a, it's an additional resource for the university and for the professor specifically. You do like it's like a little mini version of him or herself to talk to him about interesting right. projects. Uh, so I, I think most people in continental Europe do their like doctorates in law while they actually do other things, practicing as attorneys. Yeah, definitely in Germany. Yeah, yeah, so many but doctors I feel like in Germany. When your title is so important there, you know, it would be it would be very unjust to have a very hard system to get a PhD, but then require everyone in order to be respected to have a PhD. Yeah, that would be. Uh, an interesting country, though, that really puts a premium on education. Yeah. What was your application process then? Um, so I was here in this very room oh. <laughs> when I started it because the the professor that I'm working with was also a partner here at this firm. 
So he was at that time when I when I started to like think about doing a PhD. He was both professor and and uh, partner at the law firm. So I brought three topics to him that I had thought about, like I wanted to do, and then we bounced them back and forth a little bit, and and, and ended up with one that he said like this is something that I'd be interested in supervising and assisting you with, and then he puts that that what he just said in writing. Mm-hmm. So you have like an, a recommendation from within the faculty, which in Sweden is not formally required, I think, at most faculties. But uh, in practice, it helps tremendously if you have somebody on the inside who has already like vouched for you and, and, and said that he or she is willing to supervise. So you send uh, the project plan to the faculty, which is normally 10 to 15 pages of like trying to uh, pinpoint what you would like to do. But since it's a five-year thing, there's a very big understanding within the faculty that whatever you put in that document is going to have very little bearing on what you end up with five years later. So it's basically right. a way to demonstrate that I've thought about this and presumably something will come out at the end. Right. Because, <laughs> because I've spent more than 15 minutes just jotting down things. And so we sent that in together with the, the recommendation letter and you know all the other like the resumes and whatever uh, as for any normal job. And then there's... At Uppsala University, where I am, uh, nor- there's um, two two different bodies within the institution. One, which sort of screens all of the uh, applications and weeds out most of them, and I, I I've been on that as a representative for the for like the junior faculty, one year. So I've seen it from the inside. It's pretty interesting, uh, and then you narrow it down to like X amount of candidates, which is not determined in advance, but rather based on how many good applications do we have. So normally 10 to 12 or 8 maybe. Oh wow. Like very good ones. And I think last year we had maybe 80 applications. So it's still like 10%. Say 10 10% move on. And then the formal decision making body is like the, the faculty, the senior decision making body within the faculty. They get to make the decision on who is actually appointed. And then you have interviews and all of that stuff. And at the Swedish law faculties, you normally admit like two to five students per year. And each person is with a different professor. Yeah. So in theory, it shouldn't really matter like which professor needs a doctoral candidate or like which field would we like to bolster by adding another junior researcher. In right. theory, it should only be the strength of the project description, like right. who has the best ability to do a, a kick-ass dissertation after five years. And in, in theory, again, if even if like the previous four years you've admitted some, somebody within the same field, you should still admit the, the fifth the person. Within, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then I, of course, suspect that there's a lot of faculty politics going into who's actually admitted because... Is it like, I mean, I'm imagining it that it's kind of like a horse race where each professor picks its horse and then they go into the deliberation and be like, my horse should win. A little bit, yeah. That's a, I mean, it's almost but a it's, pissing contest for this Yeah, professor. it is. Yeah, I mean, welcome to university life. It's all the big, big pissing. Yeah. You're right, of course, but it's also, I think, not even courtesy, it's probably codified somewhere that you are not allowed to participate in the deliberations over the uh, candidate that you are yourself supporting or oh, okay. uh, about to supervise. So you have to leave the room, basically. Uh, but still, I mean, it's, as you know, there are always informal ways of... of swaying influence or so step one for a person that wants to get a phd would kind of find the right professor that yeah. you need to latch yeah. on to yeah 
Absolutely. Also because you were about to spend five years on like one topic with that. one person. Yeah. What a nightmare. <laughs> there should be Tinder for per, per PhD. <laughs> that should be amazing. I would love to have one. Although I don't think it's going to be a very popular sell among the like senior faculty members to get them on there. <laughs> to get them on a Tinder? <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Unless they're into that sort of thing. And I, actually, I had a meeting with my assistant supervisor because you also get a, an assistant supervisor. So I'm writing about investment 3D arbitration. And my professor, my main supervisor, is, is uh, as we've already hinted at, an arbitrator. And because investment 3D arbitration has to do a lot with public international law, I then got an assistant supervisor who is a hardcore public international law professor to sort of balance out the fact that I'm my main supervisor is primarily uh, an arbitration person. Right. Uh, and I had a meeting with him this week, and he, he told me that I'm about to go to England. Uh, and he said that you have to, when you're presenting or interacting, especially with the fancier universities in England, you have to make sure that they know that you also teach. Because in England, PhD students are students. Oh. So they write, and they hang around, and they're like, you know, what do they TAs like the, uh-huh. in, in, in the American university system. Yeah. So they, they have qualified tasks, but they don't like do the actual teaching themselves. Right. So he was like, because w- he's from, from Scotland originally. Uh, so he was like, you, ha- you have to say that you're a junior lecturer. Don't even use the like, word doctoral candidate or the phrase PhD student. Say just junior lecturer. Interesting. Because that would give you more influence immediately. And ideally also mention the fact that you've done your court service in Sweden. Uh, in which you you can uh, normally you get to judge things you get right. actually make decisions in the normal court working environment which of course in England you don't do when you're 26 it's something that's reserved for people in wigs right and same thing in the US you wait till you're prestigious enough to be appointed yeah exactly so then that's a way to like leverage the Swedish system into something more that sounds fancier than it is because it's a big difference between different jurisdictions. So how far along are you in your dissertation? I'm, uh, that's a forbidden question. <laughs> <laughs> Not it's, very polite. Right. Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I mean, newsflash, don't ask PhD students about their dissertation. Yeah, exactly. Jokingly, that's, it's, it's partially true, actually. But uh, I, uh, I am about to finish off my fourth year, so I have one year left, basically. Okay. So it's more of a time thing than how far along are you Exactly. <laughs> yeah, because the other question is more complicated, of course. But I've done everything that's not the dissertation. Awesome. I've done a couple of years teaching, and I've been hanging out and doing my so faculty duties. Four years down the line, are you so sick of your topic? I'm not, actually. Okay. Partly because I haven't worked very hard at it yet. <laughs> You're teaching. And... <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I haven't been. And I, I know... It's a big problem, seriously speaking, in the doctoral community, doctoral candidate community, that people drop out because it's the the amount of depression compared to like other legal professions is pretty high because you get fed up and you're basically alone for like yeah. five years with a thing that you may or may not like so much after like a year. Or you find out year three that it's maybe not as controversial as you thought yeah but then you can always like pivot and, and right. move into something else that's similar because you also find out many other things when you spend a few years just reading about one topic you're bound to like open new doors right. that you didn't know uh, put the gun down <laughs> you can pivot <laughs> quote from joel yeah that that would be my 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 takeaway so what do you think is the highlight of this process like what do you 
maybe something that you didn't expect was going to be an amazing, rewarding part of the process? Like, was teaching kind of the thing that yeah, but really that's, got you that's moving? I think that's what I expected would be the highlight. Okay. And normally what I think most people expect. And that's a very good thing with the Swedish system that you get to interact so much with students. And I've been fortunate enough to do it basically on, only on a master's level. I, I taught private international law for one semester for like the undergrads in, in the Swedish law program. Otherwise, we have a master's program in investment treaty arbitration. And that's been truly amazing just to be able to sit in a room with like 20, 25 people who are smarter than you are and, right. and talk about uh, interesting things. And I must say, I've also enjoyed being alone so much. Personal preference, probably. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, yeah, because I don't know if I could... For, it's self-discipline. Yeah, which or, is or lack one. thereof. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then being alone. But I mean, I, there's nothing more lonely than sitting with a draft at a law firm. But then at least, ideally, somebody would read it. <laughs> at the end of the day <laughs> right yeah and comment upon it or like oh. act upon it or pay for it or whatever how often does feedback come back and maybe you're in a unique situation where feedback may or may not come back but like generally it depends so much okay uh, on the relationship you have with your supervisor and also on how much you want feedback right because the whole point is that you are about to like you're, you're training to become an independent minded eccentric academic <laughs> so the whole system is like designed in a way that, that makes most things available if you make a move yourself to get it right basically so it's it's completely possible that happens from time to time that you just don't see people for five years because they can check out there's no like system in place to yeah. make sure that you're actually you have normally you have to teach but as long as you've done that you can basically just move into the woods and not talk to anyone for four years and on, on the other side you could also do like i'm doing as an arbitration lawyer as you know there are like always conferences and seminars yeah. and I spent years just traveling on, on my supervisor's dime going to conferences that have had marginally relevance <laughs> for, for marginal relevance for my dissertation, I think. So you make it your own experience, I guess, yes. based off what you want to do. But what, and then go after you have sent in your dissertation and you've defended it, then is it always academia that you have to go into? Uh, in Sweden, it is generally like what mo most people would want to do, but being in an in international arbitration, of course, there are other. Yeah, you have a friend who just joined that firm, right? After her PhD, she joined. Yeah, in in London. London. That's right. That's right. That's a very good example because she did her PhD in public international law. Now she works primarily with public international law and in like an arbitration setting, a boutique firm in in London, and I think that was. I, I think, that is my guess, that I think firms in, in major arbitration centers like London, they do appreciate people with an academic, like bona fide, uh, cool resume, more than maybe Swedish law firms, because I think right. spending five years at university here is generally just viewed as a waste of time, <laughs> as opposed to like actually working as, an, as a lawyer for five years. Yeah. But I think many other firms, I mean, you see people who... Are, who all the big names, of course, uh, most of the big names at least, they, they combine an academic uh, working lifestyle with, with a law firm. Yeah. Well, I mean, even just working on this article with you and just seeing the different styles, it's like your your comments are soften the language, soften the language, because I'm so used to being so yeah, angry when I dress. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, I mean, I think there is a danger that you could pigeonhole yourself 
Um, but if it is something that you're interested after your PhD, I guess the opportunities are out there. But you have to know that you're coming with a theoretical mind to a practical environment. And you're going to have to switch it over. Yeah. I think for me personally, it's been the other way around, that I've come to a theoretical environment from a practical background, basically. So I, I still haven't really transitioned into this, like, <laughs> talking about legal philosophy until midnight thing that goes on at the law faculties. I'm still thinking way too much like a practicing lawyer. So I, I think I, I could transition back and like come back home and be the like smart, theoretical, theoretically minded person in the law firm. Right. But which the bar is pretty low for, for being that person as opposed to being the, the like least theoretically sophisticated person in the <laughs> academic environment. Like, ah, he's a, a business lawyer over there. He's not interested in Wittgenstein. Right. All right. The end of our inaugural episode, Joel. What, what, what do you do then? You pop a bottle of... No, you're going away. Of yeah. That's the arbitration lawyer that you're... Where are you going? Boston. Cool. I'm also going away. I'm just realizing to Gothenburg, the Boston of Sweden. Yeah, we're both headed to Central Station very soon. Yeah. Glad we put this in on this beautiful cloudy day. Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming down. Mm-hmm.